0: you just have to look at the images of the convoy you know people jumping up and down drawing attention to themselves desperate to be seen desperate to be recognized desperate to be heard you know and and it's our place to 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 listen to people and to give them space to to be able to articulate their fears their anxieties their resentments you know that their economic anxiety and so forth and that doesn't mean allowing hate speech to prevail. I mean, this is not about creating space to silence others. It's about creating space in which we negotiate dialogue. We understand the reciprocity of dialogue and we have faith in reason, kind of gentle reason ultimately prevailing.
1: Based out of the University of the Fraser Valley on unceded traditional lands of the Stolo people, we are the Community Health and Social Innovation Hub, or Chassis for short. We support the social, mental, emotional, physical, and economic health of those living in our communities by bringing together experts from across disciplines. Those experts have some incredible stories and insights. To share those with the communities we serve, we bring you the Cast, a monthly program where we drill down on a current topic and chat about how it impacts our lives. So, hello and welcome to our first Chassis Cast. I'm Martha Dow, the Director of the Community Health and Social Innovation Hub, and it's my pleasure uh, to introduce Dr. Jacqueline Nolte, who is our former Dean of the Faculty of Arts at UFV, uh, and most would agree a critical part of the heart and soul of this place. Um, Jacqueline, we wanted you to be our first guest for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, you were the champion of Chassis uh, that ensured that our community partners Chose UFE as the home for this hub, so thank you uh, again for that. And second, I just wanted an excuse to talk with one of the smartest and most passionate educational leaders I've had the privilege to be around. So welcome.
0: Thank you, Martha. Yeah. So not sure that I deserve those glowing comments, but I truly appreciate them. And um,
1: yeah, thank you. Well, you do. Um, so by way of introduction, um, I'm hoping that uh, you can talk a bit about your journey. Uh, so, you know, what are those critical junctures or moments that you think have shaped uh, your path? And I know that's big and wide open, but there's just so many aspects that I've had the privilege of hearing tidbits about. So I just wonder if you could talk a bit about about your journey. Yeah, thank
0: you. Um, I think before I proceed, I do need to just center myself, locate myself and, and thank people um, who have made it possible for me to to live the life that I live here in Canada, and I want to acknowledge that I'm um, currently on Coast Salish territory, and so you know my hands go up to Cowichan people, Cowichan tribe, and I I'm sorry that I'm not sharing Stolo territory with you right now, but um, I'm I'm living on the island, and I I wanted to to just acknowledge where I am. I think as well that. Um, I I need to acknowledge, particularly at this poignant time and place, all that Canada, and I use the word with full consciousness of how problematic the notion of Canada is in relation to Indigenous territory, but I want to acknowledge and, and extend thanks to those who've made Canada the democracy that it is. You know, I grew up in an extremely authoritarian society. It was a society built upon institutionalized racism um, and the ideology of what was known as apartheid in South Africa. Um, And it was blatantly designed to protect the interests of a colonial white minority settler society. And that settler society went on to classify people according to race. They'd brought in a number of slave populations. My ancestry is a mixture of settler and slave um, ancestry. And people were, were classified according to race and then accorded to different privileges it, with regard to whether they were regarded as so-called whites or so-called non-whites. They were forced to live in separate places. They were forced to um, accept different health systems, educational systems, ultimately the farce of different parliamentary systems in a reserve system that was actually built upon Canada's reserve system, but very differently um, acted out historically. You know, and and the absurdity of the society in which I grew up is that uh, sexual relations were prohibited across these classified races as well. There was a 1949 Mixed Marriages Act and, you know, it, it split societies, it split society into many, many fragments because, of course, people had intermarried over the centuries at the point of colonization. You know, my family was also affected by that. And so it was a brutal society. I lived through many states of emergency, in a militarized society. I was born shortly after the first treason trial in South Africa, which is when the African National Congress had been identified by country as a, as a major threat. Politic, one of a couple of um, political liberation parties, extremely threatening. And of course, um, many of you will know that Nelson Mandela was one of the primary architects, of the evolution of the African National Congress in the 50s, going into the 60s. And some of you might know about the terrible events of Sharpeville in South Africa, but that was a formative uh, turning point in really my upbringing. Um, there was a massacre of a number of people who were protesting against forced carrying of um, what were called dompasses. And there was a pass law because People of color weren't allowed to traverse white areas or live in those areas. They could only move there when their labor was required. And so this whole pass system was designed to really protect these labor reserves, primarily for for mining. Um, so the pass laws were, uh, resulted in, in this massive protest against pastors. Women were very instrumental in leading that anti-pass law campaign. And um, shortly thereafter, the African National Congress and liberation movements aligned with the ANC. It's very complicated to get into the history of the liberation movement. The Pan-Africanist Congress had broken away from the ANC. They, in fact, led the past campaign, even though the ANC bigger liberation. They were all banned, um, including the Communist Party. You know, the backs of the trade unions were kind of broken. So, you know, that was the space that I grew up in, the spanning of these opposition movements and um, this very violent apartheid system with what was called Christian national education that we were subjected to at schools. And by the time I'd left school, I was already quite politicized. I'd been working with um, young university students just up the road from my high school, learning a lot about, I suppose, revolution, Um, you know, theories of, of resistance. When I got to um, university, the black high schools were literally in flames protesting against forced use of Afrikaans as an official language. Afrikaans was a derivative of Dutch, is the was the, um, the primary settler language. So there was this massive resistance against the use of Afrikaans as um, an official language. And schoolchildren just left schools, then they boycotted the system. So as young university students, what we were trying to do, or some of us were trying to do, was to set up safe spaces for these um, youths who were without anywhere to go during the day. And um, we established what were called open schools and community arts projects and um, sort of alternative educational environments in which youths could gather and learn. So really my university years were were dedicated to learning to work in NGOs, Um, and when I left university, sort of jumping over a lot of um, graphic experiences at university. But when I left university, I was determined not to work for the state in any way at all. Even though I went on to acquire um, an educational diploma, but I—it was a farce. I mean it content thereof was extremely distressing, and I didn't ever want to apply that in, in a state setting. So I worked in NGOs, and at a certain point in time, once the emergency acts had intensified, the states of emergency went on uh, one after the other, I realized um, I either had to leave the country or I had to make a choice to put my life on the line in the same manner as young, I'm saying sort of, as, as young men had chosen to put their lives on the line, young, primarily Black men who had decided to, um, to fight for their rights. So this was a, a huge decision to move from above-ground cultural and political work to joining an underground cell in the African National Congress. And I think I worked in the ANC in that capacity for about eight or nine years. It went right through until 1994. Um, even though liberation movements were unbanned in 1990, we had to remain underground because of the period of uh, attempted destabilization of democracy uh, between 1990 and 1994 which is when we were also negotiating for a new constitution. So those years um, were intense and difficult and terrifying and, quite frankly, awful, but at the same time, very heady and very exciting because this new constitution was being negotiated. Um, some of us who were who were out about our sexuality um, and were you know proudly part of the LGBTq community uh, were particularly intent upon getting LGBTq rights entrenched within the constitution itself and because we had been out during the struggle and in the um, in the ANC, I know that that was part of why we we ultimately succeeded so you know that really is where I sort of cut my teeth on or in the the struggle for democracy and attempts to build organizations that were were focused upon trying to accommodate the voices of all. You know, our meetings at NGOs were um, sometimes across 13, well, not as many as that, but there were 13 official languages. So there'd sometimes be four or five language groups in a meeting, and and meetings took a very, very long time, and the objective always was to arrive at consensus as opposed to just one off majority vote. So that always took um, a lot of energy, a lot of patience, and um, a strong commitment to listening. So on the one hand, there was that modality of working, and on the other hand, I took a personal decision, which was a very uh, graphic black and white decision, to um, align myself with a particular movement that had resorted to um, military struggle against the south african regime and you know for me that's why this current attack on democracy that we've seen across our border you know and on the border recently is so incredibly uh, disconcerting you know, i chose to come to Canada because, well, I I'd met my partner as Canadian um, and I was tired, I was burned out and I, I just needed to, to go inward and to sort of reconstitute um, myself. Basically, I, I had a lot of PTSD. I didn't know the name for it at that time, but um, the prospect of coming to Canada was a good one because I respected the democratic um, structures that Canada was known for, its work on human rights and so forth. Of course, you know, I know now that there's not an untainted record in relation to human rights and indigenous issues in Canada. But at the same time, on the international stage, um, Canada had a very good reputation in terms of transparent and accountable government. Um, So being here at this point in time, witnessing what we're witnessing um, with this rise of you know, right-wing nationalist populism is uh, really, really chilling.
1: So that's what strikes me. I mean, how do you weigh in when these this narrative of you know freedom of speech and a rights discourse um, employed around the convoy, kind of as we're moving through pandemic, given your experiences, right? So we've we've heard people say that it's so grounded in a privilege to be making these arguments about rights and freedoms um, that we've just most recently seen in the convoy in Ottawa. How do, you, how do you react to that as an educator, as a citizen?
0: How do we respond? Well, I think first of all, for me, what's been distressing is um, recognizing that there is so um, so much misinformation, quite frankly, ignorance about the workings of our political democracy. You know a lack of recognition of the legitimate channels of of political expression, and and a kind of pride in echoing United States rhetoric uh, about partisanship. You know we see this with inappropriate sort of draping of the Canadian flag over people's shoulders, as if people in power um, don't represent the people as it were. So there's this fundamental questioning of whether democracy um, exists in Canada that's taking place, which frankly, I find naive, ignorant and unfounded. Um, And when notions of partisanship are used to kind of construct our fellow citizens as enemies, uh, that's a kind of crazy Trumpian kind of um, posture, which is um, suggesting that you know individual liberty is is more important than the public or the common good, and I think there's a difference between individual rights and um, individual liberties, and you know human rights are ensconced in, in the institution um, thankfully to, you know, with thanks to uh, justin Trudeau the Emergency Act has now been lifted and it, and there is a strong recognition of the importance of, of protecting human rights. I'm hoping you can kind of solve all the world's problems
1: before we finish. But I uh, and so I wanted to get to the university as a space. So, you know, you talked about the university as a radical space. So as you know, given what you just you've just relayed, what does that look like? for us to be that space. I mean, right now I'm seeing students, my own children grappling with what's going on in the world and how they become players in terms of change. How do you understand or see when you mentioned the, you know, and talked about the university as, a, as needing to be a radicalized space?
0: Well, now is certainly not the time for um, cynicism or complacency or entitlement or despair. And I think the university needs to contradict all of those by focusing on, on agency. Uh, And, you know, and I don't naively assume that individuals can um, in a quick, easy sort of stroke of the brush transform systems. But I think that it's, it's our place to teach learners how they positioned within complex, broader frameworks of power and to understand uh, how to, shape themselves inwardly and outwardly in relation to those spaces that they occupy. And, you know, so we can do this in in so, so many ways. And I think we, you know, we are doing this. And ultimately, this is really towards engaged citizenship, towards the importance of people developing a more refined, sophisticated understanding of citizenship and how important it is to maintain and defend our structures of democracy. We can't be passive. You can't passively believe that these structures are resilient. They are um, imperfect. They need constantly to be attended to. And I think that our place as a university is to alert people to how to free ourselves of the violence that we do to ourselves and to one another. Um, I think that universities are places that should model, um, mutual flourishing, and um, really insist that wherever power takes place, and it takes place in in all contexts, at all points in time, that we are aware of where um, power dominates and constrains others and and how we can empower others to kind of move into those um, spaces of power. So, you know, I know that's idealistic, but I absolutely believe that universities are places to model big ideas and um, And big ideals, you know once people are aware, I think, of agency, what can be contradicted is anxiety and a sense of marginalization and a sense of not belonging, uh, because that need to belong is so central. I mean you just have to look at the images of the convoy, you know people jumping up and down, drawing attention to themselves, desperate to be seen desperate to be recognized desperate to be heard you know and and it's our place to 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 listen to people and to give them space to to be able to articulate their fears their anxieties their resentments you know that their economic anxiety and so forth and that doesn't mean allowing hate speech to prevail i mean this is not about creating space to silence others it's about creating space in which We negotiate dialogue. We understand the reciprocity of dialogue and we have faith in reason, kind of gentle reason ultimately prevailing. You know, that's really testing, I think, the experiment, the commitment, the belief in in what what universities can set out to do. So perhaps you can poke some holes in that, Martha, um, and then I can respond.
1: How optimistic are you feeling about our faith in reason, given that when you look to the convoy and so great much question. of, you know, what yeah. What does yeah. that mean?
0: Well, I, I personally um, think that our reason is flawed. I think our epistemological frameworks are flawed. And I think that um, one of the, the great objectives in a university environment is to always recognize the limits of our reason and the limits of our Um, Frameworks of knowing. And for me, that's what's so exciting about indigenization at at UFE and then across Canada. There's a possibility here of really questioning the epistemological frameworks we work with, recognizing that our ways of knowing are far from complete, and opening ourselves to a place of um, uncertainty and humility. I do think that um, historically, universities have been uh, elitist institutions with a lot of arrogance in the certainty of science, the certainty of measurement, you know, the certainty of technical skills, you know, the certainty of overwhelming bureaucratic and kind of managerial structures, and, and all of these things need to be interrogated. Uh, so, I mean, I believe in reason, but I think reason has to be interrogated to the point of it potentially um, having to reconstitute itself all the time. And that's what's uh, wonderful about a place that purports to um, create knowledge where we can literally question the foundations of our knowledge and in humility invite questions in from the public, from people who don't trust us as to why we presume what we presume. And that means defending um, in the most accessible ways possible uh, what our research has revealed, what our mutual learning um, has has set us up for, which I hope is to solve some of the challenges, and I, you know, be so bold as to say yes, we can solve some of the supposedly inextricable challenges um, that we face right now in relation to democracy, uh, you know, in relation to environmental stresses, um, and 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 so on. So I'm. Um, extremely optimistic precisely because of how we can um, question our own rationality and our own epistemologies.
1: At the threat of going down a rabbit hole uh, for a quick second, if we could, how would then you respond if, you know, opening ourselves up to critique and conversation uh, to a greater extent in a time where, in fact, some of the voices feel like such a threat and that harm for many of us, it needs to be expanded in definition, not to be, you know, that kind of very narrow physical harm, but the harm that's done in terms of sort of that racist, privileged discourse that characterized much of what happened around the convoy. Do you think actually, universe, there's a threat that academics might be more worried about opening themselves up by giving greater voice um, to some of those voices that are creating uh, social order harm and individual harm?
0: Yeah, and I think you know we've touched at this in conversation you and I, and I think you probably have a much more sophisticated analysis of dialogue with respect to these concerns than I do. Um, I do believe that um, we are obligated to shape the kind of community that right of the want walls to be of up. the university, and that does mean uh, developing an ability to. To recognize the dizzying array of perspectives that make up the world with all the dangers therein. Um, And, you know, this means bringing people together from very, very different uh, positions in life. It means taking the risk of saying, "Okay, we're going to collaborate on a project together. Our students come in uh, with uh, very different perspectives and positions. You know, you negotiate this on a daily basis in the classroom. And I have to trust at a certain point in both um, the importance of reason and the importance of compassion with regard to believing that people will learn, will learn the benefits of reciprocity. And our place as an educator is to create a safe space for that collaboration to take place. Um, so I don't think we can shy away from um, what we know are the dangers of certain hateful um, intolerant positions but we have to be bigger than that in order to create a robust space to fulfill that dream of the university which quite frankly the word university is to assume you know an integrated understanding of all things and the only way in which we can do that is through extending ourselves to create a space for um, these very different and, and contesting perspectives. So I know that's an idealistic um, answer, but um, I am an idealist. And I think that we're beholden to do that. We're beholden to model ways of pushing through towards a recognition of our interconnectedness. And that when harm is done in one part of the world, as is happening right now in U- in Ukraine, the rest of the world, becomes deeply hurt and and pulled into that trauma. Well, I'm going to selfishly pull our
1: conversation to a close because I think thinking about uh, the critical importance of reason and compassion is exactly what I selfishly need uh, as we navigate what is going on in the world. So I want to thank you so very much uh, for spending the time and being our first guest, and uh, we'll look forward to more conversations.
0: Thanks, Martha. And I just... Um, truly hope that I can live into you know a courageous space and that we at the university uh, can all live into a courageous space because I think we're about to move into a place where we're going to be tested in a way um, that we haven't been t- tested in many, many years on all fronts. And hence the importance of believing in this great um, ideal, of uh, the, the democratic project in the university. And I do want to squeeze one more word in here, which is that... Um, we have to do this at all levels of the university, not just in the classroom, but really from the board through leadership to administration, you know, and to our faculty becoming courageous public intellectuals. There are just so many exciting challenges where we can practice this. And I thank you for, for doing the work that you do. Thank you.